This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Let me uh, begin uh, with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. Um, We do pray that at this moment you would uh, open our ears and our eyes to see your glory, your majesty, your goodness, your intention for our lives, that we might live lives that glorify you, that make much of you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's my privilege, joy, and pleasure to uh, open the Bible and teach what God has to say about marriage today. Uh, Can I ask you to please open your Bibles to that passage that uh, Hope just read, or you might like to follow along as it appears on the screen behind me. Uh, Now, before we launch into the text, let me just say uh, up front that I'm aware that this morning in this room, uh, we have a diverse demographic of people. Uh, We have single people, and as we heard from Matt last Sunday, even within that category, it's so diverse. And this is equally true when it comes to marriage as well. There are those who are hoping to marry, thinking of marriage, planning to marry, just got married, currently are married, have been married for a while, struggling with their marriage, thinking of walking away from their marriage, were married, are remarried. And so I just want to acknowledge, and I just want to acknowledge this, and I hope that wherever you are at, I'll be faithful to God's word, but also sensitive as I speak today. Uh, Also, it's worth saying that if you're not in marriage, in a marriage, or if you have no intention of marrying, uh, you listening in today uh, will enable you to be more mindful, more intentional, more prayerful as you seek to love and care for those in this kind of relationship. Uh, Now, if you're married, let's just imagine for a moment You're sitting in a room facing your spouse, and between the two of you, a cushion is placed on the ground. That represents the nature, the quality, and the health of your marriage. Let me ask, what does your marriage consist of? Uh, What words would you use to describe your marriage? Is it enjoyable, fulfilling, uh, helping you become a better person? Or is it challenging, difficult, perhaps even painful? You see, marriages always start off in a loving way, don't they? Uh, You meet the person you love. You can't imagine life without them. Uh, You're certain that this is the person you want to do life with forever. Have kids with, buy a house, live a fulfilling life, grow old together. But then sometimes the reality is, as with other things in life, There are different seasons in your marriage. There are times where it's enjoyable. There are times where it's challenging that the person you're married to, you soon realise, is not perfect. The kids aren't perfect either. And to be fair to your spouse and your kids, you aren't perfect either too. You realise that the married life lived daily in close proximity to this person that you said, I will to, is as broken as you are. And so when we come to this realisation, when we encounter these challenges, the question we're left asking is, where do we go from here? Now before we we answer that question, let me ask you to hold on to that thought for a moment. 
while I share the following. Uh, This is not a talk on why you shouldn't get married or why you shouldn't stay in your marriage because marriage is a gift from God where there's much joy, much blessing. Uh, At least that's the way that God intended it to be. But the reality is because of our sins, the fall, our brokenness, the married life can be difficult at times. It can be challenging. However, the thing that I want to avoid is this. This is what I want to avoid. In our culture, the pendulum swings between two opposite ends. There are those who are, that are pessimistic about marriage, and then there are those who are optimistic about marriage. The pessimists are like my friend who said to me the other week when he found out that I was doing a talk on marriage. He said, Seti, been there, done that, didn't work, tell him not to try it. Or there's the story of the priest who was marrying a young couple and had pity on them for deciding to marry. So he prayed the following in the opening prayer at the wedding ceremony, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do. (laughs) And then on the other side of the spectrum, on the opposite end, there are those who have this unhelpful, unhealthy, unrealistic Hollywood, feel-good, Tinseltown notion of marriage. There was that Channel 9 TV reality series uh, a number of years ago called Married at First Sight, where it was advertised as Australia's biggest social experiment, and apparently there was going to be these relationship experts uh, who would employ, use neuroscience and psychology to gather eight singles and create four perfect couples. Somehow we can either be too pessimistic or too optimistic. But what we need is a realistic, healthy, biblical view of marriage, the way God sees it, the way he always intended it to be. That no matter what stage of life you're at, what issues you're confronted with, where things are at, we can be real, raw, and vulnerable enough to say to God, Lord, I need you to make this work. And to say to our loved one, without God, this can't possibly work. Someone once asked Ruth Graham, the wife of the great 20th century American Christian evangelist, Billy Graham, humble, godly, influential man, if ever she thought of leaving Billy Graham, and her response, no, never, just murder. (laughs) A talk on marriage means allowing God to enter into the inner sanctum, that private place, where few are permitted to go, and allow him to speak into our lives deeply, honestly. Remember the question that I posed earlier on? If marriage can be challenging, where do we go? And the answer is, we need to go back to the foundations, back to the beginning, back to the first marriage in human history. Think of it like this way. When cracks start to appear in the walls of a house, the problem is not above the ground, but below the house. Something has shifted, the foundation is unstable, and it's not safe to live in that particular structure. We can talk about the symptoms all day long, but we need to talk about the sickness, and the only way to do that is to be able to go back to the foundation of how it was meant to be. Let's now have a closer look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 25. And in my reading and reflection this week, uh, there are five key things 
that I can see um, make a healthy and flourishing marriage. Number one is relationship. In Genesis chapter one, as God creates everything, and if you're familiar with the passage, you may have noticed that each of the six days ends with God standing back, looking at the whole canvas of creation, and numerous times the clear resounding chorus that is heard throughout chapter one over and over and over again, six times in total, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. But then when we get to chapter two, straight after God makes the first man named Adam, suddenly it says in the first part of verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. Every creature has been presented before Adam, paraded before him, named by him, and yet none was able to deal with his problem of loneliness. Verse 20 to 21 says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and, the, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Suddenly, the flow, the rhythm of this creational account is interrupted by something that is lacking, incomplete, deficient, loneliness. That's the problem. That's the issue that Adam is confronted with. At the beginning of the year, uh, Brad organised for a number of the anchor families to chip in together and get these annual yearly family passes to Toronga Zoo. Uh, last school holidays, our family used the passes and had a family day out at the zoo. The very next morning, after our trip to the zoo, one of our kids walks into the bedroom, one of our young boys comes to you know, Lewis and says, Mum, last night I had a dream about the animals at the zoo and I missed them terribly. And you know what I said to my wife? I said to my wife, wait until he gets older, hits puberty, and the last thing that he'll be dreaming about is that big, ugly, silverback gorilla down at the zoo. Now, what do I say there? The, the, the reason why I say that is because naturally built in our DNA, the way that we, are, have, we have been wired, created in the image of God, is this longing, this God-given desire for relationships. Yes, I know that part of it is testosterone, it's hormones, it's chemistry, attraction, all at work at the same time. But what's going on is we long for that, we desire that, because that's the way he's made us, for relationships. God made Adam, and he knows what Adam lacks. He lacks companionship. It's interesting that one of the largest secular online marriage resources committed to providing information and a community that supports a healthy and happy marriage says at the top of the 15 keys for a healthy marriage, number one, be independent. Take your time for yourself. Enjoy your personal hobbies. Spend some time apart. And I get it. I, I do get it. You need downtime for yourself, a hobby to enjoy, uh, time and space to unwind, refresh, reload, uh, uh, absence makes the heart grow more fonder. However, at the top of the list when it comes to Genesis, the Bible, the view that what makes a marriage healthy, flourish, is not independence, but relationship. It's not isolation, but enjoying one another's presence. Just as God is a relational God, the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, coexist, are united 
relate to one another perfectly, just as God is a relational God who has sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, pursues us, persists with us, is patient with us because he wants us to be in a relationship. So he has made us in his image. And some of us get to express that, enjoy that in the context of marriage. And so what becomes the priority is our relationship to our spouse rather than our jobs or careers. Our marriage rather than our hobbies. Our marriage rather than anyone else and anything else with the exception being God. Because none of these things were made to deal with, to address the problem of loneliness like marriage can. Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 15 says that even though God, God put Adam in the garden to work it, to take care of it, and there were no thistles, no thorns, no struggle, no, uh, no drought, everything grows, harvests all year round, but there's still the problem of loneliness. In verse 16, it says that God permitted Adam to eat everything, but there's still the problem of loneliness. Earlier this week, I was talking to a guy, not from Anchor, uh, who is married, young family, a couple of young kids, works 75 hours each week, 6 a.m. starts, 8 p.m. finishes, six days a week, and I, asked, and I said to him that he can't possibly sustain that kind of workload and expect his marriage to grow, to be blessed, to mature, to flourish. Because something will give, something will give, along the way, as I've learned the hard way. He might be cashed up, but he'll end up relationally bankrupt. Providing for your family, yeah, that's important. That is a priority. Our families need provision, but they also need our presence, particularly our spouse. That is being present, not just physically, but being present Involved, engaged, relationally, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. There is a need to protect our marriages, attend to it, cultivate it, not neglect it. And it does take time, it does take intentionality, it does take energy. There's a need for us to be thoughtful and intentional when it comes to making sure that our marriages are healthy, that they do grow. That's God's intention. Number two is partnership. God not only saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, but it was necessary for him to have someone who not only he can share a relationship with, but someone who he can be in partnership with. In the second part of verse 18, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. The Hebrew word for helper, it appears about 21 times in the whole of the Old Testament, Mainly, for the majority of the time, it's in reference to God. And when he speaks of God, and when it speaks of God as being a helper, it means that he is the one who is my strength, my rescuer, my protector. So please don't make the mistake of thinking that because God made Adam a suitable helper named Eve, then somehow Eve is less important to Adam, she's subordinate to him, she's subservient to him. One commentator pointed out that the phrase, a helper fit for him, in reference to Eve, is used without any narrow qualifications, prescribed limits, 
or crafted cultural restrictions, but rather she was to alleviate his loneliness, partner with him in their joint commission and mission to do life together, raise a family together. God, through the Holy Spirit, specifically uses the word helper to affirm that Eve is equal to Adam, Eve will provide strength for Adam, and she will partner with him as they do life together, husband and wife. Both are different, but compatible. What he lacks, she supplies. What she lacks, he supplies. Partnership in marriage is about husband and wife, living under the same roof, sharing the same bed, having the same bank account, uh, sharing the same vision, going to the same church, worshipping the same God, pursuing and following and living for the same Jesus daily, consistently for the rest of their life. Marriage is hard, actually impossible, if the husband and wife are not partnering together. And usually the partnership bit doesn't work when there's no relationship. It's a no-brainer. It's not the kind of partnership that is contractual, but it's covenantal. It's not based on conditions and clauses, but it's built on a promise. And some can make the mistake of approaching marriage with a consumer business mentality. The biblical approach to marriage is serve, sacrifice. Not be self-centered, other person-centered. I remember a comedian once said that every time he was invited to a wedding, he would wear all black all the time because at a wedding it was the death of two people. And it's true. You're laying your life down for your loved one. Now God is a covenantal God. He makes promises throughout the Bible. He loves his people and he blesses them. He pursues them even though they're constantly disobedient to him but he persists, he pursues, he goes after them. Because of what? Because of his unrelenting and undeserving love for them. And it's the same for us in Jesus. A contractual approach to marriage places itself at the centre where the biblical approach, the covenantal approach is it places the other person before your own needs. If you listen to the wedding vows, the language is not contractual, it's covenantal, isn't it? I such and such take you to be my such and such to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise to you. That's the stuff of a covenant. Someone who, according to their version of the story, no infidelity was involved, nor was there any domestic violence, Spouse walks out, you know, like three months before, asks me the question, how long do I wait until I get remarried? Answer, it's the wrong question. Because a covenantal marriage, what does that say? I ask you the question, how much do you love this person? How much are you willing to pursue this person? Eve was God's gift to Adam to help him complement his weaknesses strengthen him, bolster him. Not only was he lonely, but with Eve, you have this wonderful picture of equality, unity, and affinity. Again, God's 
original intention for marriage. Number three, love. Verse 21 to 22 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You can't talk about marriage, of course, if you don't mention love. The 17th century Welsh-born commentator Matthew Henry commented on God's choice of rib to create Eve when he wrote, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. Yeah, maybe this might be reading a little too much into the whole thing about the rib, but I must say that it expresses precisely the biblical ideal for marriage, doesn't it? It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of how God in his great and infinite wisdom intends for all marriages to look like. Every day I sit with men at the maximum remand security part of Long Bay Jail and listen to story after story after story of their parents' broken marriages. And while not all marriages that end are like this, but this is what their experience is like, and it's no wonder why they end up where they get to at the bay. Physical abuse, all forms of abuse that these men were exposed to and subjected to right from a very young age. And it's always humbling and heartbreaking to hear their stories. And I think to myself, if only our society, our community, had a right idea of what marriage ought to look like, then we wouldn't have so many broken people in our world, particularly the ones that I come across anyway at Long Bay Jail. Our world needs a different kind of love, a radical kind of love, a Christ-centred, god honouring, out-of-this-world kind of love where it's demonstrated to a watching world around us how it looks like when you have a godly husband and a, and a wife loving one another and sacrificing for each other. The well-known and often preached passage at wedding ceremonies that you might be familiar with is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. From verse 4 to 8, it says, Love is patient, and kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so the first century apostle Paul, well, he didn't, he, I can't say that he was thinking about marriage when he wrote that. He was thinking more specifically about Jesus, because only Jesus, unlike anyone else, is able to love perfectly like that. But it doesn't let us off the hook, does it? Because the core and the challenge for Bible-believing, Jesus-professing Christians, particularly married couples, in that relationship, is to love their spouse in the same way. And to be honest with you, there are times there are times when it's easier to be impatient rather than patient, especially when you're overworked, sleep-deprived, 
or stressed out. It's easier to be unkind rather than kind when you feel like you've been misunderstood. It's easier to be boastful when you feel like you're not appreciated. It's easier to demand your rights than to be accommodating to your loved one when you feel strongly about your point of view. It's easier to be irritable when you're so run down and tired. It's easier to be resentful when you have been wronged or sinned against. It's easier to walk away Give up, you're fed up, and not endure. Now let me just qualify that last point I just made. Uh, What I'm not saying is that you stay in a marriage, in a relationship where there is domestic violence, where there is abuse, where there's infidelity. But then having said that, I've known people in my own personal life that where there is genuine repentance, much prayer, Accountability measures being put in place, partial care and professional counselling as well as a long, careful process being followed has led to forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. Honestly, when I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, personally, I sometimes find it difficult because that's not always me all the time. But we thank God for his grace, that he's able to forgive, that he works through his Holy Spirit to transform us and enable us to become more like his son Jesus each day. Number four, leave, hold fast, and become one flesh. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and thou shalt become one flesh. I know that I'm stating the obvious, and it's even, it even sounds stupid to say it, but marriage is the decision to leave your father and mother. In the Jewish culture, getting married didn't mean physically leaving your parents. In fact, when a Jewish man married a Jewish woman, he would go to the wedding ceremony, marry his bride, bring her home, and live with her in one of the rooms of the many rooms of his father's house. And so the question is, why is it that God through his spirit wrote that when a wedding takes place, you are to leave your father and mother? What the Bible is talking about here is leaving your father and mother mentally, where you now have this new relationship with new values, new priorities, new goals to be set, new decisions to be made, new dreams to aspire to apart from your parents. You can seek the counsel but they must not make your decisions. You can ask them for wisdom, but they must not interfere. They must not run your life. The day you get married, what you are doing is leaving your parents and forming this solidarity with your loved one. And it's great, isn't it, when you have godly, loving, supporting in-laws. It becomes a disaster when they become outlaws the day after you get married. Your married life also involves holding fast to your spouse, whether that is your wife or husband. The biblical idea here is that two people are being glued. They are stuck to one another. When you hold fast to your spouse, you are basically entering this relationship with this kind of mindset, this attitude, a goal, the determination completely resolved to make it work. Why? Because anyone who's been married long enough will tell you that there will be tough times ahead. 
you will have to ride out the storms at some point every now and then. Speaking to a young man and he said to me, after I had shared with him that I'd been married for almost 20 years, by God's grace, and he said to me, I wanna get my life sorted out first and then get married. And I kinda laughed at myself and I thought, you never really do get yourself together. You never really ever arrive at that point until glory comes and Jesus returns and you are perfected and you are taken to glory with him. Because when you enter into a marriage, it is one sinner getting married to another sinner. And the only thing that sustains it and keeps it together is God's grace. This is very different from the kind of mindset that is so prevalent in our society and culture today because everything is contingent. That's the way people operate. Marriage also involves becoming one flesh. Yes, part of it has to do with sex, but it can't be just reduced and restricted to that. Becoming one flesh is about two individual lives becoming thoroughly united where you share the same convictions, beliefs, and priorities. Marriage is not only to be protected from your in-laws, from your parents, from infidelity, mentally, emotionally, physically. Sometimes we can make the mistake of allowing good things, blessings from God, like our kids, to take precedence over our spouse. And I know what that's like. Personally, sometimes in our desire for our kids to have access and opportunity to learn, to grow, to reach their potential, we spend so much time running around, driving the kids, uh, trying to ensure that they get to the many various sport activities, music, tutoring, and the list goes on and on. That at the end of the day, mum and dad are so tired, maxed out, haven't spent time with one another, and the marriage suffers considerably. I've even seen this with Christian couples. They spend all their time, all their energy and their resources investing into the children and neglecting their own marriage. And what happens is the kids grow up, they graduate, they move out, and then what happens? Mum and dad break up. And people often wonder and ask or say, how did that happen or where did that come from? We didn't see that happening. We didn't see that coming. Well, they started all the way back when they started having kids. It wasn't the kid's fault, but it was a failure to see that God has made marriage where husband and wife are to live, to serve, to help one another grow in their relationship and flourish. Number five, and the last point is trust. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just as love is one of the core keys to a marriage that is healthy and flourishing, Trust is also important and necessary. Necessary for any marriage to thrive and to grow. Now I know that what we're talking about here is the pre-fall before sin entered the world where Adam and Eve were both naked, felt no shame. But there's something going on here that I don't want us to miss. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, our greatest desire is to be accepted, belong, loved unconditionally. But then our greatest, our greatest fears are being found out, exposed, judged, rejected. And marriage is one of the very unique relationships where you can be fully known and yet fully loved. Marriage is the kind of relationship where you can be completely vulnerable 
and there is no shame. A healthy marriage that is godly and biblical is where there is trust, transparency, integrity. There's nothing to hide, nothing to conceal. It's why, according to the Bible, marriage is the great picture of the gospel. Our marriage ought to be signposts that point others to the gospel. Because the gospel is all about being fully known and yet fully loved by God. I love that Tim Keller quote. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Through the gospel, God says, I know you, I know your past, I know your brokenness, and yet I've chosen to pursue you, to save you, to love you. Why? Because of the atoning work and sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why in order for a Christian marriage to continue to grow, it needs to be built on the gospel, shaped by the gospel, informed by the gospel. For when our marriages are gospel-centered and it is reorientated around the gospel and it is saturated by the gospel, you are more aware of your brokenness every day and more willing to forgive your spouse and more thankful to God for marriage. When I met up with one of my mentors during the week who happens to be a Christian counsellor specialising in the area of marriage or relationships, kind of handy when you are preparing for a marriage talk, he said to me, Sadie, I want you to picture a two-dimensional triangle. And at the very top corner is God. On the bottom left corner, you have yourself. And on the bottom right-hand corner, you have Louisa. And the closer your wife and yourself move towards God, the closer you come together. And isn't it true that when we make God our treasure, that when he becomes the object of our affections, that when we become wholeheartedly, completely devoted to him, then only then do we love our spouse well. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote when he says, when I have learned to love God better then my earthly dearest, I shall love my dearest better than I do now. And that's, that's my encouragement to people who've just got married, that they pursue Jesus, that they make him a priority, that he becomes the centre of their life, because that is the key to a healthy marriage. All of this is really about a return to Eden, a return to how God has always intended marriage to be, what it looks like. But we can only do that, we can only know the depth and the power and the goodness of God's reconciling and restorative work in our own marriages when we have tasted the goodness of the gospel. When we understand and we're able to get our head around of how he has reconciled us to him through Jesus, restored us in Jesus, made us whole again in Jesus. So friends, as we come to a close and as Steve and the rest of the musicians come up, um, as Hope mentioned earlier on, uh, they will be singing a song followed by a number of other songs, but a number of the ways that we do respond to God's word 
to the message this morning. Uh, there are people uh, in the back who are available and willing to pray for you with orange lanyards. That's one way you could respond. Another way that we could respond is through singing and praise and giving God his worth. That's what it means to praise him. And another way to respond for those who are regulars, who call Anchor home, there will be buckets coming around as we give to the ministry and the mission of making much of God, less of ourselves, making his name and his fame known in this, in this city of Sydney. Why don't I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage. We thank you that you're the one who created it and you're the one who caused us to live in such a way that honours you in the way that we relate to our spouse, our husband or our wife. And so we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon our relationships, our marriages, that we would be a great example, a reflection, a signpost that points others to your son, Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.